Right, well, nice to see some more people here this morning. And it's also nice. This is so I, I had preached from the building a couple weeks ago, but that's, you know, I was still sitting down. We were still running Zoom just in case there's still people on Zoom. And I so it's like had a laptop in front of me. This is the first time I'm actually like standing up and preaching since like March, I guess. So this is nice. And plus, I'm not tethered. You know, I always have stuff like connected to me and the computer and I can. Not that I usually walk around a lot, but it's uh, it just feels nice, and it's nice to see you guys. So we're we're getting to the end of our study. We've been going through Malachi, and we're getting today. We're going to be looking at the the second to last of the six disputes in Malachi. So we're on the fifth one this week. And something Mike brought up last week was just how when we first started studying Malachi, we neither of us really expected it to be so practical to find so much application to daily life in a book like Malachi. It's the last of the minor prophets. And it's just one that we hadn't really paid a whole lot of attention to before. And this passage today is is no exception to this fact that there's a lot of um, practicality to it. Although just like the rest of the, each of these disputes, it's really, it's a topic that's not always comfortable for everyone. Um, but that's really just kind of that element of discomfort is it's something that comes with the territory when you study pretty much any of the, the prophets. But before we dive into today's passage, I just want to quickly review the four disputes, the, the arguments that we've talked about so far. So remember, that these are like arguments between God and his people, the, the people of Israel after the exile. So does anyone remember, what was the first topic, the first uh, dispute about? There's a claim being made that the people were arguing with God about. Anyone remember? Yeah, exactly. The, the claim, God's claim was that I have loved you. And the people were like, well, they, they came back with how? How have you loved us? So they were arguing that God didn't love them um, with that sort of retort. And then God's response to that was, well, of course, of course I've loved you because you're still here. I haven't wiped you out. You're still here, and that proves that I love you. And then the second dispute was directed to a specific group of people. Does anyone remember who that group of people was? That was, that was when I was on vacation, and I, and I watched Mike preach live. Does that help at all? The priest, yeah. So... The second one, God was uh, speaking directly to the priests because they had, he was saying, you've been presenting worthless offerings to me. So the people had been bringing, where they were supposed to bring perfect, unblemished, spotless, uh, the best of their um, their animals and their, their crops. They were bringing sick and, and just wounded or, or lame or otherwise worthless offerings to God. Uh, and the, the priests were like, okay, sure, yep, I'll, I'll take that. So it was the priests that God was actually getting on for accepting those offerings when they shouldn't have. And then the third one was also kind of directed to a specific demographic. Uh, does anyone remember what the third one was about? Yeah, it was it was specifically to the men, and it was uh, addressing the adultery and the idolatry 
that they were practicing. They were leaving their Jewish wives, marrying foreign wives, and worshiping their idols. So it was the, the, the claim was that you, you've been faithless to your wives and you've been faithless to me. That was the third one. Fourth one, was just last week, it should be the freshest in your memories, uh, if you were here or watching, um, what, what was God saying in the fourth one about his people? heard a murmur. <laughs> so this one is a little trickier to, to sum up because what God said was, you have wearied me with your words. And those, the words that wearied God uh, were basically, they were saying, God rewards evil people. He rewards faithless people. And God is therefore not just. So people were disputing the justice of God, saying, you're not really just, you reward wicked people. So, so those are the, the four topics that we've looked at so far. Um, and by the way, in, the, in that fourth one, God said, uh, basically, just you wait, you don't, you don't want justice, because if you were receiving my justice, you'd be, you'd be, you know, totally destroyed. Um, but so let's find out what the, the fifth one is going to be here. And this is going to be in chapter three of Malachi, if you want to find your places there. Malachi chapter three, beginning in verse six, and it's going to be verses six through 12 that we read. And I want us to read through the whole passage together. We're going to read through the whole thing, and then we'll kind of come back and uh, go through it a little piece by piece. I'm going to read this um, first time, at least in the, the New Living Translation. It says, I am Yahweh, and I do not change. That is why you descendants of Jacob are not already destroyed. Ever since the days of your ancestors, you have scorned my decrees and failed to obey them. Now return to me, and I will return to you, says Yahweh of heaven's armies. But you ask, how can we return when we have never gone away? Should people cheat God? Yet you have cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? Here it is. You have cheated me of the tithes and offerings due to me. You are under a curse, for your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says Yahweh of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Your crops will be abundant, for I will guard them from insects and disease. Your grapes will not fall from the vine before they are ripe, says Yahweh of heaven's armies. Then all nations will call you blessed, for your land will be such a delight, says Yahweh of heaven's armies. So what's the, the accusation here? It's in, in verse 8 is where it really, it's kind of right in the middle. Uh, it, it gets to the point. It says that they've cheated him. They've cheated God. Or in, in other translations, it says rob. They robbed God. So what have they robbed him of? It's the tithes and the offerings that are due to him. So we're going to talk about what that means, the tithes and the, the offerings. But first, let's look at how he kind of leads up to that statement. So I started off in verse 6, uh, which we actually, I believe, Mike covered verse 6 last week, where it says, I am Yahweh and I do not change. That is why you are not destroyed. 
So that statement, it, it really works as a transition, <clears throat> transition from that previous dispute to this one. So it works as a conclusion for the previous message about God's judgment uh, and his justice and the coming day of Yahweh. But then it also gives a really good introduction, this transition into the next thought. He says, I am Yahweh and I do not change. And that is why you descendants of Jacob are not already destroyed. So why would they have been already destroyed? I mean, he's already kind of covered some of that, but then verse seven goes on to explain Ever since the days of your ancestors, you have scorned my decrees and failed to obey them. So he's basically saying they've always been unfaithful. Uh, from the very beginning, they've scorned him. They've broken their covenant with him time after time again. So God's basically saying, you know, you deserve to be destroyed, but I have spared you. And of course, that sounds familiar because this is really kind of continuing that thread that started in the first dispute uh, in the first chapter. That idea that it's really only because of God's love and his mercy that they're even that Israel exists at this point. And God's saying here that who he is, his very nature, his character, it never changes. And that's a really important fact. Uh, and I think it's also just the fact that God is making a statement about himself is, is something we should really pay attention to. That's theological goal. It's, you know, a statement about God by God. That's, that's pretty cool. And the theological term that we have for this fact is immutability. We say that God is immutable. That's important in this context because in Malachi, it shows that it's, it's, not, it's the people who have changed and who have turned away from God. It's not God who has changed. It's the people who are fickle, they're quick to abandon their commitments to God and to each other. But God does not change. And it's an important fact for us to recognize because, first of all, it's why we can study who God is and, and learn about him and, and get to know him using these ancient texts like Malachi, reading about how he interacted with people, with Israel thousands of years ago. We can know that we are studying and learning about the same God who's alive and active in our world today. I mean, that's, that's amazing. He hasn't changed. But I think it's something that we often take for granted, especially when we're reading the Old Testament. We kind of put it in a different category, like that was a different world, different times, and, and times have changed. Almost everything about the world has changed since then. You know, our, our culture and, and circumstances, governments and technology. But the one thing that never changed and never will change is God. And that's actually, to me, a very comforting idea. The fact that, you know, in, in a world that can so often be filled with so much uncertainty in our lives, the one thing we can always be certain of is God, who he is. So it's the thing that's most worthy of our attention and learning about who he is. So that's, that, that's just verse six. And then the, fir the first half of verse seven, God's saying, I haven't changed. You formed me. You turned away from me. So what's he going to do about that? Obviously, Israel has deserved to be destroyed many times over. But obviously, that's not what God wants to do. He doesn't want to destroy Israel. And he doesn't follow this statement up with, so I've given you so many chances. Your time's up. I'm done with you. Now it's time for you to just go zap. 
Uh, and that's honestly probably in, in, if I were in his position, that's probably what my response would be. I'd be, okay, I'm, I'm done with you. My patience is totally run out at this point. Uh, but thankfully, it's not me. It, it wasn't me in that position uh, because God has a lot more patience than, than I ever will. Instead, he gives them a call to action. He says, return to me and I will return to you. He's saying, I'm, I'm right here and I want to be with you, but you don't have my blessing and my protection because you've left me. Turn around, turn away from your wickedness and turn towards me and I will love you and accept you and forgive you. And that's amazing. That's amazing mercy. And it's the same thing that he's asked for time after time again. This, you know, whenever they abandon him, this is the core underlying action, uh, call to action in pretty much every prophetic message that we read. Ultimately, it's some form of a call to repentance. And that word, here's, this is your uh, Hebrew nerd moment for the day. I kept it to one. Uh, the, the word that is translated here is return. In every, every translation I read, in this, in this case, it's translated as return. Uh, it's the Hebrew word nashu, okay? And shu is literally, it just means to turn around or turn back um, or to return. And, but it's that same word that's also just the standard word for repent in Hebrew. Anytime you see the word repent in Hebrew, it's generally going to be that word shu. Um, so the, anytime you see that word repent, it literally means to turn around or to return and go back to God. And nashu is just the plural. It's a... It's you, you plural, so y'all repent is what this, what this word is. Y'all repent. So anyway, God is very merci- mercifully, very, I think it's, it's heartbreaking to see God calling his people to return to him. It's like picturing a, a spouse of uh, begging an unfaithful partner to, to return, to come back saying, I still want you, please return to me. And yet, what's, what's Israel's response? Are they grateful? Are they remorseful? Do they repent? <sighs> Not here. No, it, we get another retort. Like we kind of, similarly to when we had, when God said, I have loved you, and they go, how have you loved us? Uh, here they say, it's just, it's so bratty is the only word I can use to describe it. They say, repent, or return. How can we return when we never left? They're in total denial that they even walked away from God at all. And it's not just that they're ignoring God, that they've turned away from him. They're actively wronging him, actively sinning against him, robbing him, which is what verse 8 goes on to say. Well, first God says, should people cheat God or should humans rob God? (laughs) Which is obviously the answer is no. And I think it's it's a rhetorical question. Uh, but it's a, it's a great question. I think it's kind of a cheeky way of saying it's a really bad idea to cheat God or to rob God. I mean, he's God. Like, why would you think you can rob from him? It's really stupid. And yet he says, you have cheated me. And again, they come back with another bratty retort. They say, when did we ever cheat? What do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? They're, they're totally oblivious. And they're essentially, by doing that, they're accusing God of falsely accusing 
So then in the end of verse 8, the second half, he spells it out plainly. This is where he says, he just comes out and says, you have cheated me of the tithes and offerings due to me. So that's their sin. They haven't been giving to God what they owe him, their tithes and offerings. So let's talk about what that means. First of all, that word tithe, uh, which is what you'll see in, in most translations. Um, it's, it's still a word we do use today in, in churchianity. It's, it's a very churchy sort of old timey word. It actually comes from an old like, medieval English word, but it, it literally, it just means tenth or a tenth portion of something. And I actually, the CSB actually translates the, this verse, the whole passage very differently. Um, and I appreciate it. It's, it's less traditional in the words it used, but it's a little more clear as to the literal meaning. It says, will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? How do we rob you, you ask? By not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. So that's the other word that's translated a little bit differently. Offerings, contributions, it's the same thing, but contributions is something that, it's a word that we kind of use in regular day-to-day English more so than offerings. So it's the, the tithes and offerings are tenth, the tenth and the contributions. So where are these concepts, these two concepts coming from? Now, you have to remember that each of these disputes, they're all relating in some way to how Israel has broken their covenant with God. And this was part of that covenant. And we can find this back in, in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. They all make references to uh, the tithes or the, the tenth and the contributions. So this was a part of their covenant law since the time of, of Moses, the Exodus. This is part of what defined them. And they really, they're, they're two different concepts. They're, they're related to each other, but they're a little bit different. So you have the tenth, and then you have that other word is a little more ambiguous. Contributions or offerings is kind of, it's not as specific. So I want to talk about both, but let's start with the tenth. And this, again, it shows up all over the Old Testament, um, the law books. But I think the most concise statement that I could find about the tenth um, is in Leviticus 27, verse 30. It says, every tenth of the land's produce, grain from the soil, or fruit from the trees belongs to Yahweh. It is holy to Yahweh. So the tenth was just a specified amount that they were supposed to set aside from their harvests. And it was to be dedicated to God the, from the, the, the fruits of their labor, which in this case was literal fruit and, and crops, which was that you know, that was essentially their wealth. Their livelihood was, was their crops. And what's actually interesting about the tent that I think we don't notice very often is that it was actually meant to be set aside in the temple not to be destroyed or wasted or, or even sacrificed or burnt up or anything. It wasn't a burnt offering or anything like that. It was meant to be set aside and then eaten later by everyone as a reminder in the presence of God in the temple, as a reminder of their relationship with him and, and as a reminder to fear God. So they actually still got to eat the tithes themselves, uh, which is interesting. And then some of it would be shared uh, with, like Levites, for example, because they weren't farmers, they were taking care of the temple, so some of it would go to share with the people who didn't have anything to contribute. But it was, the idea was the whole community was going to be participating in this tithe, which was um, officially instituted uh, and codified under the Mosaic law 
but that's not actually where it started. So it wasn't just something that came up out of the blue in the time of Moses. It was really, it seems like this was kind of a formalization of a practice that had already been going on. It was a common part of their, their culture and their worship. And the first place that we see it show up in the Bible is actually way back with Abraham in Genesis 14. Now, yeah, and this is a really cool passage. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it, so Abraham had been journeying and he, he fought some battles, won some battles. And then there's this, he meets this super awesome and mysterious guy. He's this king and he's a priest. His name is Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, this priest king, comes to meet Abraham. And he was immortal too, by the way. Uh, but he's, he's fascinating. We can't get into all that now, but uh, maybe another day. Read Genesis 14 if you want, and then read the book of Hebrews. Um, but anyway, Abraham meets Melchizedek. He recognizes him as a servant of Yahweh, and he wants to honor him. So in verse 19, it says, he blessed him and said, as Melchizedek blessed Abraham, it said, um, Abram at the time, Abram is blessed by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So Abraham gave him a tithe, a tenth. And it was to recognize him as a king and to honor him. And we see that Jacob also, he after he met God at um, Bethel, he pledged a tenth of everything he had. And you can find that in Genesis 28, he pledged to set aside a tenth of everything for God. So by the time we get to the law of the tenth being established by Moses in the time of Moses, we should realize that it's something that's already been, it's recognized as an act of honor and of submission, and it was a recognition of God as their ultimate king to whom they were paying tribute. So the tenth the tenth of their wealth, specifically their crops in their context, and, and it functioned as a reminder to serve and to worship Yahweh as their king. So that's the, the tenth of the tithe. So what about the, the offerings, or the contributions? So these the offerings were actually just personal contributions that each person made to the temple according to what they had, what they could give. So there wasn't any specific numbers or percentages Uh, for how much they should give. Uh, Those who had more were expected to give more. And everything went, uh, everything that they gave, um, most of it went towards supporting the Levites who were taking care of the temple. Again, because they didn't grow any food or herd any cattle. Uh, And it also went to support any of the non-Levites who, uh, for any reason, didn't have any land of their own or any way to support themselves. So that would include people like widows and orphans and disabled people. So actually, in that sense, the the economic model that was set up for the Jewish society at that time was really sort of a socialist mindset of of the distribution of of wealth and community support, but not with a human as the ultimate authority, with God as the ultimate authority. But the point is that the the free will offerings, as they were also sometimes called, or that the contributions went beyond just that, that tenth, uh, the tithe. And it was meant to be given without any coercion or without any spite, rather out of gratitude and generosity and just a sense of responsibility to their community, 
and both the tenth, the practice of, of, of setting aside the tenth and giving the contributions, they both had purpose spiritually and physically because it focused people on their relationship with God. And very importantly, it was a recognition that everything they had was given to them by God and they were merely caretakers of it. And so they did all this for spiritual purposes while also fulfilling physical needs, which I think is a pretty cool design. God's just really smart like that. But in, in Malachi, Israel wasn't following this design at all. And you can see that it's also brought up um, in Nehemiah. I have mentioned uh, Ezra and Nehemiah took those books were written during the same time period. So you can kind of see firsthand um, some of the, the same issues in those books. And we've already talked about how God is wanting them to repent of this sin. There's, there's this sort of urgency, a demand to respond in some way. And he's going to expound on that in the next few verses. But before we get into that, I kind of want to pause in the middle here for a minute. Kind of ask, why does any of this uh, matter to us? Um, what's, what's the application here? And, you know, that's not necessarily exactly a question that you need to ask all the time when you're reading the Bible. Uh, and I think we'll talk about that a little bit in a couple weeks. But I did make a comment earlier about how practical this book is. So I do want to make sure we understand that the practicality of this message. So when we're looking at Old Testament teachings and practices and laws as Jesus followers, we want to ask, you know, how did Jesus explain this? What did he teach about this? Or how did his followers live this out in the first century as, as a mix of Jews and non-Jews? Unfortunately for us, it's actually quite clear how Jesus felt about this topic, what he thought about it, as well as how his followers did live out these principles in the very early days of the church. There's lots of examples, but I'm, we're going to look at a pretty famous little story. This, it's kind of just a snippet in Mark chapter 12. Uh, it's just this quick little story, and it starts in verse 41. Mark 12:41 says, Sitting across from the temple treasury... He watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. So he being Jesus, he's literally just sitting and watching people give basically their, their monetary contributions, dropping them into the collection box. And what does he observe? It says, many rich people were putting in large sums. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. So they gave, they gave out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So th there's a couple things to observe from this, and whole sermons have been built around this one uh, little passage. Uh, but first, I think it's good to recognize that well, first, it was, it was just a given that people would be continuing to bring contributions to the temple during this, this time period where they had set up uh, a very elaborate um, re religious system um, because we've had, we talked about this, I think it was after the sermon last week, but a period of around 400 years from after the exile to when Jesus came. So during that time, they'd set up this very elaborate system 
which of course had many problems that Jesus addressed specifically. But um, this was one of the things that they were just expected to do was to bring contributions to the temple. And at this point in their society, the contributions weren't just based on, you know, their physical crops and their animals, because this was, they're living in more of an urban context compared to before. And their wealth had, in many cases, become mostly liquidate, liquidated, monetized um, under the, the Roman currency system, too. So they, they still contributed out of their wealth, whatever form that wealth took. But the big point, the main idea that Jesus is, is revealing here is that God doesn't care about the amount being given. He cares about the, the motives and the generosity of the relative generosity of the giver. So what does all of this look like then in practice in you know, post-ascension Christian and non-Jewish uh, society? And to get the answer to that, we can turn to the book of Acts. And this is after Jesus had ascended and... Uh, this is describing the early, early days of the church. So Acts chapter 4, uh, verses 32 through 35. This is another passage that gets read quite frequently. It says, Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. And no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. So there was not a needy person among them, because all who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. So this was a mixed group. It was both Jews and non-Jews. And in this specific situation, again, it was right after Jesus ascended, a bunch of people had, had gathered to worship and feast in Jerusalem during Pentecost. And then this crazy event happened where the Holy Spirit of God came to the apostles, and then the apostles spread that to thousands of people. And those thousands of people wanted to stay in Jerusalem to learn more about Jesus from his apostles. So it was, in this case, a rather unique situation, a unique sudden community that had just formed with unique and sudden needs. So they did whatever it took to make sure that everyone had what they needed, and, that, and they relied then on the apostles to help uh, organize that and distribute it. So this, this shows a sort of a continuation of that idea of, the, of making contributions based on what you have, but it's, it's really even more extreme than what we see in the Old Testament because they totally sold their land and their houses. In this case, they were just all in and wanted to, to just, yeah, they were all in. And, and this isn't prescriptive for every situation. And we see later in Acts and in some of the epistles, the letters of, of Paul to the churches, it's evident that there were still landowners and homeowners, even very wealthy ones who were part of the church and they weren't expected to liquidate all their assets uh, because it just wasn't necessary at that point. But those who did own homes made them available for people to meet in. And those who had plenty were expected to share so that nobody went hungry. And ultimately, the bottom line, the point is not that wealth 
is inherently wrong or inherently good. Uh, it's not something you have to totally avoid. The problem is being too attached to wealth and not recognizing that material abundance is really a gift from God. So it, it's not wrong to have plenty, but the more you have, the, the easier it is to become attached to it. So let's look at one more narrative example from Mark, Mark chapter 10, uh, because this is from Jesus himself. Another very famous story, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. As he was setting out on a journey, he being Jesus again, a man ran up, knelt down before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not be fraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. So this is just an example of how wealth can become a trap. This guy was living out all the commandments. He was feeling good about himself for not killing people or committing adultery or robbing anyone. And he was honoring his parents. He's feeling like he's lived a really good, honorable, God-honoring life. But Jesus revealed the one trap that his heart was caught in, and that was his attachment to his love of his possession. In 1 Timothy, Paul uh, goes as far as to say in uh, 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And this all relates to the concept of giving because it shows that you know, Jesus and the apostles, they, they recognize and they taught the importance of viewing ourselves as generous and faithful stewards of what God has given us, the assets that he's allowed us to have. Not hoarders or always trying to find some way to profit off of other people. but always, you know, always seeking to bless other people and to invest in God's kingdom with everything that we have. And you know, the idea of, of the tenth specifically is, is something that the Jews did keep doing as, as part of their you know, cultural tradition, and it's something that non-Jewish Christians then have continued to view as a sort of basic guideline, a, a number to base their, their giving uh, to the church off of. And, you know, that's fine. And for many of us, you know, 10% of your income, giving away 10% of your income can be a stretch. Uh, and it, it is an act of faith, but it's a very important act of faith. And it demonstrates that you can trust God with your finances and with your livelihood, rather than being proud and self-assured in your own abilities and your own success. But, you know, on the flip side of that, the numeric value of 10% really is also, it can be dangerous in some ways because then it can just become a checkbox and a, an excuse to kind of give yourself a moral pat on your own back. Uh, because ultimately, again, it's not about the amount specifically. It's about the motives and the 
heart behind it. And it's the willingness to be generous, even to the point to where it makes you uncomfortable. Because that's the point at which you're making it about God, not about you. I think 1 Corinthians 9, 7 sums this up really well. And this is where Paul was addressing exactly this topic to the church in Corinth. It says, you must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves, and this is actually a quote from the Old Testament, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. Or for God loves a cheerful giver. So this, this topic is, is certainly still relevant uh, to us today. And we, so we've established kind of what, the, what it means, the tithes and the offerings, what they were, and how they relate as concepts to us living in community with each other today. Though, you know, the act of giving, it can vary in substance, what's being given uh, and practice, how it's being given, depending on the social context. The other underlying purpose and the motivation and the importance of it, it hasn't changed since Malachi. So I want to get back to our, our passage in Malachi because there's still some really interesting things about how God addresses this issue and how he kind of continues to flesh out his response to Israel and to their sin of robbing him. So let's read uh, verses 9 through 11 again. He says, You are under a curse, for your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Your crops will be abundant, for I will guard them from insects and disease. Your grapes will not fall from the vine before they are ripe, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So this is really interesting to me for for several reasons. First, he tells them they're under a curse for robbing and what this implies, you know, is just that their crops have not been doing well. They're not, they don't have enough water. And so that traps them then, you know, in this cycle of hunger and of poverty. And he's telling them it's their own fault. It's their own fault that they're in this situation. But he's also giving them the solution. He says, fill the storehouse and I will open the windows of heaven for you, he says, which is just kind of, it's a saying that it comes from, you know, the ancient Near East view of how the world works. Uh, but it's just a kind of a dramatic way of saying, I'm going to make it rain <laughs> for you, literally make it rain uh, so, so that, you know, your crops grow and, you know, you'll have abundance. A blessing so great, you won't even have enough room to take it all in, uh, which, by the way, kind of sounds similar to another story involving, you know, some fishermen and, and a boat or two. But uh, anyway, the, the fact that he then goes on to say, try it, put me to the test. That's an astonishing statement because it's like he, he couldn't put more of a screaming, blinking red light on this statement because this is totally opposite to how God normally operates. Usually it's God. Is, he's the one testing people, not the other way around. <laughs> There's very few occasions in the Bible that he actually invites people to test him. Now, people do test him uninvited uh, quite a few times. Uh, but that's that's painted more as a character flaw, not not a virtue, not something to imitate. Uh, but here he's giving an open invitation, and that's how much he really wants to bless them. He's like challenging them. <laughs> uh, his and God's God's desire to bless people that 
yearning to bless his people hasn't changed. He wants to bless his people. However, that being said, I think it's very important to understand what that means and what it doesn't mean for us as, as Christians. So first of all, I think the first thing to get out of the way is just that giving lots of money to the church is not a get-rich-quick scheme. <laughs> uh, and uh, honestly, it feels kind of ridiculous to even have to say that, but unfortunately, it's necessary because this concept of giving to the church has been kind of twisted and corrupted by greedy humans for a long time. Uh, and even, yeah, look at Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, but most, you know, most recently and famously, you, you see this pop up in certain, not all, but, you know, certain very talented and uh, charismatic uh, televangelist preachers uh, who, you know, they, they espouse what has now become known as uh, what we call prosperity theology. And it's just this idea that the more you give to the church, the more God will bless you with material possessions. And that's just, that's just wrong. Um, and giving is, giving is about that. It's about giving, not getting. It, you know, wise stewardship, taking care of what God has given you, that's a virtue. And wealth in itself is not inherently wrong. But investing in God's kingdom and expecting some sort of physical return, like a mansion or, or cars or a yacht, you know, it's, it's just, and that's extreme. But even, even on a small scale, that's a total misunderstanding of what you're investing in when you're investing in the, the kingdom. The goal is not physical wealth ever. It's, it's a spiritual return that we're looking for. So we, we give to give, not to get. And even in God's promise to Israel, the promise was to bless them as a whole, first of all, as a nation, uh, in, in a very broad sense and in a practical sense, by allowing their crops to grow, basically, you know, to survive. And it wasn't ever about making them individually wealthy. It was about making them thrive as a community as a whole. And the second thing that uh, I want to bring up is just, and it kind of comes from that, it's kind of on the flip side, an important distinction to make is that, and this relates to verse 9, where God points out that they are under a curse because of their sin. Okay, and I just want to be clear that this particular statement, in fact, both the curse and the details of how he was going to bless them with you know, the, the grapevines and such, those are specific details to this context, to this people, to this time, it does not mean that when we undergo hardship, that we're under a curse from God. It's, that's, that's not an application point to take away from this. In fact, you know, as Christians and as humans, we're told to expect hardship, to expect trials, and to even welcome it. So, you know, the fact that trials of various kinds are expected, uh, and you see that in James chapter 1, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. <laughs> and notice that lacking nothing, he's not referring to physical things. He's referring to spiritual richness and a richness of, of wisdom and knowledge and a relationship with God. And then finally, I think it's important to realize that when God does happen to bless us with wealth and with comfort, uh, which in the U.S., most of us live pretty relatively comfortable lives. 
But God's blessings are always for his sake, not for ours alone. Notice how this section in Malachi ends in verse 12. After God, he says how he'll bless them if they return to him. He says, then all the nations will consider you fortunate, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. So the implication here is, is again, that the purpose of God's blessing isn't just for their own sake, but to, to show himself to the rest of the world. And this reflects his promise to Abraham, to bless all the other nations through Israel. So I know we've, we've kind of covered a lot of ground today, kind of skipped all over the place. Uh, but here's what I think that the takeaway is from this dispute, the number five in, in Malachi. Just to realize that everything that we have in life, from our material possessions and, you know, our families and our very health and our strength, we only have because God has allowed us to. So we're stewards of God's resources. Everything is his. And to be a faithful steward on earth is to recognize that nothing is our own. It's to abandon selfishness and greed and embrace generosity. And not just in our contributions to our church family, but in really every aspect of life. And money is, is a part of that, but it's not just about making, you know, a donation somewhere or writing a check. It's about living in such a way that you're constantly looking for ways and, and seizing uh, opportunities to invest every resource you have, whether that's time or money or your strength, uh, your food, talents and skills, or even just stuff that you have. So, you know, things like a car or, you know, a shovel. It could be anything. Uh, it's just looking for ways to invest what God has given us into his kingdom, which is other people. So three, three questions to ask yourself today. And this is kind of the prophetic part. This is you know, where you're um, looking for, for God to convict you. Three questions. The first is, am I a willing and cheerful giver and generous giver, or am I reluctant, am I selfish and stingy with my giving? Second question is, am I able to trust God in every aspect of life, including finances, or am I clinging to any aspect of my life, clinging to control over that aspect, rather than submitting to God as, as my king, as, as the owner of the whole universe, including me and everything I own? And then finally, the third question is, am I giving when I give for the right reasons to worship God and to be a blessing to other people, regardless of how inconvenient it is for me? Or am I just giving to kind of check off a box or to gain favor with God and, and uh, kind of hope for more physical wealth in return for my giving? So these, these can be hard questions to ask. Uh, depending on where you're at, but they're, they're heart questions, forgive the pun. Uh, and, but that's what God cares about at the end of the day is what's in your heart. And then just as a final note, if anyone, uh, including anyone, you know, streaming in live, if you have any, you know, follow-up questions about this topic, about, uh, you know, tithing, finances in general, 
please feel free to reach out and ask Mike. Uh, he, you've done that to me enough times now. I'm gonna <laughs> gonna do it back to you. Uh, he'd love to talk to you about that. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's uh, that's it. Let's let's pray and we'll we'll be done. Do we have any? Lord, Heavenly Father, I just thank you once again uh, that we can be here. We're so grateful to be your children, uh, the children of a, of a loving and generous Father who gives abundantly. Lord, I, I pray that you would convict us, encourage us, uh, for each one of us according to what we need in order to grow closer to you and, and grow in our faith and our ability to trust you with everything we have, even when it's scary, even when it's inconvenient or uncomfortable, to trust you and do what's right, no matter what the cost is to us. And Lord, I pray that you would be pointing out to us ways in which we can be a blessing to others with our money, with our time, with our things. Uh, even just with our ears, to sit and listen. Lord, I pray that you would show us and teach us how to be stewards of your world, the earth and each other, and in the process, bring, bring people to you and ourselves closer to you as well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, there is one exciting announcement.